0: If you have your bibles, you can turn with me this morning to Genesis chapter 6. Looking at verses 8 through 22 today, a God of grace. Last time we were together, we spent time exploring the character of God as one who is outside of time, but still willing to bind himself to time. A God who is transcendent but still connected. One who is unchanging, but can still repent. And in a manner of speaking, we continue this week with another insight, several insights, in fact, by the end, into the character of God. And then we'll proceed in the Word of God uh, to see how it is that His character is magnified in this time—the time of the flood, the time in which we are considering here in Genesis chapter six. So we pick up the narrative in verse eight. Technically, this morning, although I'm going to go ahead and begin reading in verse one, I don't have that up on the screen. Uh, I'll I'll uh, I'll switch here to verse eight. You can pick up with me when I get to verse eight. The There were giants in the earth in those days, and also after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, and they bare children to them, the same became mighty men, which were of old, men of renown. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, and it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and creeping thing and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. Verse 8. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations, and Noah walked with God. So God has pronounced that man has 120 years left before the destruction of man for the wickedness of their hearts. At least that's how uh, we have interpreted that. There, there are several uh, interpretations of that. The other being that man will begin to, sh- his life will begin to be shortened. We talked about that. Um, I don't believe that that's necessarily uh, where this is going. I think it makes more sense in the text that this means that there are 120 years left before this judgment came to pass. But there was one man who, in the midst of the judgment, was not going to be condemned with the rest of the world. And this man's name was Noah. And he was not going to be condemned with the rest of the world, not because he had earned God's favor in some appreciable way, not because he was someone special, not because he had some sort of special purity within him, but because Noah walked with God. Now, to this point in the Bible, this concept of walking with God has been the essential expression of one who is in a right relationship with God. When Adam and Eve sinned and they hid themselves, the Bible says that God came to walk with them in the cool of the day, and they hid themselves, and God uh, engaged with them as it related to their sin. They hid themselves in shame and in fear, things which were new to them when their eyes were opened and they understood good and evil, and yet what we see is that God came to walk with them to commune with them. It is said of Enoch twice that he was a man that walked with God, and this established his testimony that he pleased God. And then here we have Noah, a man who is described as just and perfect in his generation, a man who walked with God. And it is worth our time here in this moment to understand how these descriptions that Noah was just And perfect and walked with God are defined by the phrase that we read just before it in verse 8. That Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And to help us with this, we go to Romans chapter 4. In verses 1 through 5 of Romans 4, the Bible says this. What shall we say then that Abraham our father as pertaining to the flesh hath found? For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory but not before God. For what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly his faith is counted for righteousness. Now here, we do not see the example of Noah, but we see the example of Abraham, who would live a few generations after Noah. But in that, we learned last week that God is an unchanging God, that God's uh, plan has never changed, that God's character has never changed. Certainly, God has uh, um, uh, acted differently toward different men at different times, according to his overarching purpose, as we talked about last week. We talked about a cruise liner, right, going from point A to point B, and things might change as it relates to what's happening on the boat, but that boat is going from point A to point B, and nothing is going to divert or sink that boat. So as we understand this then, we recognize that while God's methods over time certainly change, his character and his purposes remain unaltered and unerring. So Paul speaks here of what the Bible says about the relationship of this man, Abraham, who will come to in time. We'll, we'll, Genesis uh, 12 is where we find Abraham, so we're not too far out from him. And what this man Abraham, the relationship between him and righteousness. Abraham, the Bible says, was a righteous man. But he was not a righteous man, again, because he was a sinless man. You go through the accounts of Abraham's life and you find quite definitively, Abraham was not a sinless man. But he was not a righteous man because he was a sinless man. He was not a righteous man because he was a unique or special man. Though God had chosen him unto a unique and special direction, that was not why he was called a righteous man. The Bible says he was a righteous man because he believed God. He believed the word of God as it was revealed unto him. And when at once Abraham chose to align himself with the revealed word of God, God counted that as righteousness to Abraham. Paul would go on to define this concept in the scriptures as justification. And notice what Romans 4 very purposefully says about Abraham's part in this justification. Paul says that if a man tries to earn his way into righteousness, if I could or if I try to earn my way into righteousness and indeed I was successful at doing so, whatever reward I might gain by these earnings, that reward is owed to me. It is a reward that I have earned. Any reward God will give is a reward then of debt. God owes this to me because of what I have done. But that is entirely different from the concept of grace. Grace is, as we would define it, unmerited favor. By definition, I have not earned it. I am not worthy of it. Grace is when I am given a favor that I do not deserve. That I have not earned. So Paul says that to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. God's method of grace has always rested, not upon works, it can't, or it's not grace. A man is born into sin, he is wholly incapable of being righteous in himself, which is why we need grace, and God's plan has always rested on grace that the man who will place his full faith and trust in the Word of God, who will follow God's Word, God will declare that man righteous on account of that man's faith. And that man will then be, in the eyes of the Lord, perfect, not sinless. That's not what the word perfect means in our Bible. Perfect in our Bible does not mean sinless perfection. It means finished or complete having everything necessary to its nature or kind. And that's what this means. So when Noah was a man who was just and perfect in his generation, this was not saying Noah was some sort of special sinless man. This is saying this was a man who had found grace in the eyes of the Lord. We know that. Verse 8 says that. He was a man who was then justified and thus brought into that place of right relationship with God, and so, biblically, perfect. And faith has always been that fundamental thing which pleases God. We were in Hebrews not all that long ago on Sunday nights. Hebrews 11, verse 6 says, But without faith, it is impossible to please Him. That's God. For he that cometh to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. So we take these ideas and we bring them back to Genesis chapter 6. Noah is a just man, a perfect man in his generation, a man who walked with God. But all of this is preceded by that statement, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, which helps us understand, helps us connect this context of Noah's perfection and justification to that which Noah has received, not which that Noah has earned. Noah was not a sinlessly perfect man. Noah was not a perfectly just man in the the case of, of human justice. Noah was a man who walked with God. He believed God's word. In the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, Noah chose to follow the Lord. And this was imputed unto him for righteousness. And his reward was a reward of grace. Noah was given something he did not earn, He could not deserve because he had faith. And this is the first time, in fact, the word grace is found in our Bibles. And thus we are able to, through this first instance of the word grace, begin to formulate our thoughts as it relates to what God is attempting to do here, what God is attempting to show here. The first time we see grace, we see a man who is walking with God being given something that he has not earned or deserved And that something will, of course, be magnified in this picture of the ark of salvation, that thing which he is able to enter into when, in fact, the rest of the world is condemned unto judgment. So we read, as we continue in verses 10 through 13 of Genesis 6, And Noah begat three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And the earth also was filled with corruption before God, and the earth was filled with violence. And God looked... Upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. And God said unto Noah, The end of all flesh is come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. We find the reiteration of information which we have already been given. Noah has three sons. Their names are Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The earth is corrupt before God and filled with violence. Now, remember the context of this corruption. Verse 12 says, All flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. This did not say all flesh was corrupt. This is, the problem is not a corrupt flesh, as we talked about as we were dealing with early in Genesis 6. The problem is that they had corrupted their way, they had corrupted their path, they had corrupted their manner of living. Their hearts were corrupted, their direction was corrupted they were walking in rebellion to the lord as verse 5 described it every imagination of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually and because mankind had followed the impulses of his own sinful heart into absolute corruption evil and violence god declared that he was going to destroy the earth and all the men upon it however we find that noah or excuse me that god is telling noah this thing and that's specifically because, as we know already, Noah will not be among the judged because Noah has found grace in the eyes of the Lord. But how is it then that God will deliver Noah from such a complete destruction? Verses 14 through 16. God says, Make thee an ark of gopher wood. Rooms shalt thou make in the ark, and shalt pitch it within and without with pitch. And this is the fashion which thou shalt make of it. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits, the breadth of it 50 cubits, and the height of it 30 cubits. A window shalt thou make in the ark, and in a cubit shalt thou finish it above. And the door of the ark shalt thou set in the side thereof, with lower, second, and third stories shalt thou make it. So God commands Noah to make what is called here an ark. Literally, the Hebrew word is the word for box. This doesn't mean that it had to look like a box, as we think of a box today, but rather the idea is that Noah was called by God to make an enclosed vessel that would be suitable for housing things and for protection. In this case, namely, to protect people and animals. And God described the process of building this ark, that it was to be made of gopher wood. Now, this does not refer to the animal, the gopher, but rather it's a transcription of a Hebrew word which describes this wood. And this is the only place in the Bible where this wood is mentioned. To that end, uh, as of now, we don't really know what species of wood this is. We have no context to know it. There are theories out there, and um, I would encourage you to, uh, if you're curious, to go uh, chase down people much smarter than me uh, to figure out uh, perhaps some, some of those answers. But it was also pitched inside and outside with pitch. This word pitch is simply a word which means a covering. We take it to mean some sort of substance which was intended to seal around the wood joints. And it was to be made 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, and 30 cubits tall. Uh, There's a lot of debate in biblical circles, archaeology and the like, as it relates to what a cubit would actually be. Some people would say 12 inches, some people would say 18 inches. The actual length of the cubit would change depending on culture and time. Um, However, generally speaking, it would be something akin to about 510 feet long, 85 feet wide, and 51 feet high. And as I said, there's a tremendous amount of information online if you would like to dig into the ark a little more. That doesn't mean you should just go online, go into Google, say ark, and then take whatever pops up first. That's never a good way, right, to interact with anything online. But I would encourage you, um, there are good ministries. As far as the ark, Answers in Genesis is probably the one that spent the most time thinking through the actual ark. They've built uh, an ark, a life-size ark, all of those things. So uh, the ark is pretty important to Answers in Genesis and they've got some really good information as it relates to the Ark and I'd encourage you if you're curious um, you can look that stuff up online they have plenty of videos about it, you can go see it for yourself and um, I would would, uh, encourage you to do so if you'd like to. We will also talk a little bit more about the nature of the Ark particularly the amount of room in the ark when we get to Genesis 7. So that's coming up here over the next couple of weeks. Uh, we'll contemplate the nature of what was in the ark, how many animals were in the ark, how much room was in the ark, is it reasonable, is it, is it um, uh, rational, all of those sorts of things. So we'll get to that um, in due time. We do find as well, as we think through these dimensions of the ark, as it relates to the nature of a boat, as it relates to the nature of it being seaworthy, of it being strong, um, that these dimensions are, for lack of a better term, perfect for a ship. In fact, Noah's Ark was the focus of a major scientific study in 1993 in South Korea in a world-class ship research center. They compared 12 holes of different proportions to discover which design was most practical, and they found that the Ark's proportions and dimensions were the sweet spot between comfort, stability, and strength. Stating rather that the arc's careful balance is easily lost if the proportions are modified, rendering the vessel either unstable, prone to fracture, or dangerously uncomfortable. The study also confirmed that the ark could handle waves as high as 100 feet if it were well-constructed based upon the dimensions given, which means this was a very well-designed and sturdy boat, at least as it relates to the dimensions. We don't know how Noah built it. We don't know all of the nature of those sorts of things, except that we know he made it through the 40 days and 40 nights, and then he made it through the rest of the days where he was still floating in the thing. So it probably, he probably did an okay job. Right? So, Though we believe Genesis to have been written by Moses, and we believe that, they, that this was written among a people who were not seafaring, the Hebrews have never been a seafaring people, yet we recognize that God gave Noah and inspired in the writing of Moses those perfect dimensions for a seafaring vessel in order for, to lift the kind of load that they were being asked to lift for the necessary number of days that they were being asked to sustain. And again, we'll talk a little bit more about the ark in Genesis chapter 7. So, the Scriptures continue in verses 17 through 22, and the Bible says this, And behold, I, even I, that's God speaking, do bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh wherein is the breath of life from under heaven, and everything that is in the earth shall die. But with thee will I establish my covenant." And thou shalt come into the ark, thou and thy sons and thy wife and thy sons' wives with thee. And of every living thing of all flesh, two of every sort, shalt thou bring into the ark and keep them alive with thee, and they shall be male and female. Of fowls after their kind, and of cattle after their kind, of every creeping thing of the earth after his kind, two of every sort shall come in unto thee to keep them alive. And take thou unto thee of all food that is eaten, and thou shalt gather it. To thee, and it shall be for food for thee and for them. Thus did Noah, according to all that God commanded him, so did he. So we finish the chapter, and we find that God promised to destroy all flesh, not just of mankind, but also of animal kind that is upon the earth. Now remember that God had given humanity dominion over the rest of the earth. And when God gives a person authority, that authority, excuse me, Comes with both responsibility and accountability. Fathers, you're given authority in your home. That authority comes with responsibility and accountability. I have been given authority in this church. That authority comes with responsibility and accountability. Our civil leaders are given authority that comes with divine accountability and responsibility. Authority always comes with that, and humanity was given authority over this earth, and with that came and comes responsibility and accountability. And when man... Who was given God given authority, do, did wrong, and when he does wrong, it is not just that man that suffers under that evil. In fact, as we look at the world that is around us, as we have, as we can understand from history, and certainly the example of the Word of God, history bears record that it is not even often that authority that primarily suffers under his own evil choices. Quite characteristically, Those who are under his authority will suffer more than he will for his bad choices. The Bible tells us that all creation groans under the weight of the curse. A curse that was brought by man onto this earth. And in Noah's day, all creation would be made to feel the weight of the judgment of mankind's sin. And then God says to Noah in verse 18 that he would establish instead a covenant with Noah. And this covenant, the first of its kind in the Bible is that God would spare Noah and his sons and his wife and his son's wives, and two of every kind of animal, male and female, to preserve them upon the earth. Now, to this end, God told Noah not only to build the ark, but also to gather food so that his family and all of these animals would be able to eat while they are on the ark. And the Bible says that Noah, as we might expect, obeyed God. He did everything that God had asked him to do. And so it is that we find ourselves in what we would presume to be somewhere within that 120 years out from the flood where Noah begins building this ark. The Bible tells us in the New Testament that Noah was a preacher of righteousness, so we would presume that for the next 120 years, Noah and his sons will be building an ark and preaching of judgment. And so they do this thing by faith in preparation for what would be the judgment of the entire world. Hebrews 11:7 describes it this way. By faith, Noah being warned of god of things not seen as yet moved with fear prepared an ark to the saving of his house by the which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is by faith noah was told by god to build an ark because the flood would come and would destroy all flesh noah had nothing but god's word to commend this warning to his heart but noah believed this warning he was moved with fear He built the ark. And not only did the ark save his life, and indeed in that sense humanity, but his faith was counted unto him for righteousness. As has always been the case in every generation of mankind from the beginning. Faith pleases God. And those who come to God must do so by faith in the revealed word of God. And with that, let's think through a couple of applications. Three, to be precise, this morning. First... Grace has always been man's only hope for salvation. We'll talk more about the ark as a picture of salvation in a couple of weeks as we kind of put all of this together. It's one of the seminal points in human history. It's worth us taking time to really think about. But in a more general sense, we find the first establishment of a principle which will become foundational to the gospel of Jesus Christ as we understand it throughout the whole of the Word of God. All men are sinners. All men have fallen short of God's righteousness and God's glory. No man is able in himself to be worthy of God's righteousness or to earn himself favor with God. God is perfect. We are not. God is holy. We are not. The first time we fell short of holiness, we were separated from God. That's that picture of death that we saw established in Adam and Eve. The moment they ate of that fruit, they died. Did they keel over? No. Did their spirits leave their bodies? No. But their spirit was separated from the Spirit of God. Death. Death. That's death. That's separation. They died. All men are born into that state of death. We are separated from God by virtue of our sin. Even for we who are in the faith, the rewards of heaven are not the rewards of our efforts, but as we considered when we were in Hebrews, they are the rewards of faith given by grace. Any man who finds favor with God will not find that favor because he has disciplined himself into a certain manner of living, will not find that favor because he has elevated himself above others in the world morally or with his capabilities. Any man who finds favor with God on the authority of God's word from beginning to end finds favor with God from Adam to the last man on earth because he exercised faith in the revealed word of God. And God, therefore, graciously chooses to place his favor upon that man because of faith. This has always been his design. It has never changed. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 has been been applicable forever. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Adam had nothing to boast. Adam was a sinner who found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Adam hid from the Lord in his day of fear and of shame and the Lord confronted them and he killed an animal and he made them clothes from the skin of that animal and it initiated a relationship of grace. Noah had nothing to boast. He was a sinner who found grace in the eyes of the Lord when he decided that he was going to heed the word of God and walk with God. And as we walk through the Bible, the same can be said of Abraham and of Israel, and of Joseph, and of David, and of Daniel, and of Peter, and of Paul. And we follow that scarlet cord of those throughout history in the church who have chosen to walk by faith and not by sight to today where we, by God's grace, for we who have accepted Jesus as Savior, continue in that lineage of those who, through no merit of our own, stand redeemed and justified, but only through the merit of what Jesus Christ did on the cross, only through the merit of this singular principle, the just shall live by faith. Every man who has ever seen the salvation of the Lord, every man who ever will see the salvation of the Lord, every reward which will rest upon that pile of gold, silver, and precious stones that 1 Corinthians tells us about will be God's divine response of grace in response to faith in the heart of a man. To that end, if you have never received that grace through faith. If you are one sitting here today and you have never come to that place where recognizing that you are a sinner and that your sin has separated you from God and that you cannot make yourself right with God, that there's nothing that you can do, there's no amount of money, there's no amount of going to church, there's no amount of effort, there's no amount of morality, uh, there, there's no church. None of these things can get you to God, but only Jesus alone, that when God sent His only begotten Son... And then Jesus lived a perfect life, but then he died a sinner's death. And as he was on that cross, the Bible says, God the Father made him, Jesus, to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And if you recognize today that you cannot be righteous in yourself, but maybe you've been trying, and you've been trying really hard, and you've been working really hard for that, and it's not working out, and I can tell you it's not working out because it's never worked out, and if you find yourself in that place today where you say, yes, that's where I am, but I need something different, would you today make that choice? For God so loved the world, John three sixteen says, that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Romans 10 says, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Would you call upon the name of the Lord today? Would you make that decision today? You can make it right there. You don't have to wait for me. You say, well, pastor, I don't really understand. Well, then come to me after the service and we'll talk about it. But you don't have to wait for me or for anyone else. You can do it there, right now, in your seat. Call upon the name of the Lord. Acknowledge you're a sinner. You cannot save yourself. Jesus did the work for you. You need him. And the Bible says, all who come to me, Jesus says, I will in no wise cast out. So we find this principle grace has always been man's only hope for salvation. Second principle God never judges the righteous with the wicked. We see here another instruction, no introduction, excuse me, to a principle which will span the whole of the Word of God. This principle is that God never judges the righteous with the wicked. We will see this principle clarified just before the account of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 18. Again, we're in Genesis 6, so we've got a little while to get to Genesis 18. But in Genesis 18, there's an interaction between Abraham and the angel of the Lord as it relates to this very idea. And we read in verse 25, Abraham speaking to the Lord. He says, That be far from thee to do after this manner, to slay the righteous with the wicked, and that the righteous should be as the wicked. That be far from thee. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And the Lord actually assents unto this argument. And it creates a, a much broader establishment of a principle that, again, we'll continue to see throughout the word of God. The judge of the earth always does right. God is not a man where he might mess up from time to time. He might not have all of the answers. He might not have all of the insights. And, you know, he's going to maybe be batting 900, but certainly not batting 1,000. Nope, nope, God bats 1,000. The judge of the, all the earth will always do right. Now, at first we say, well, yes, but didn't we just establish that there is none righteous? And indeed we did, right? Okay, so if there is none righteous, then why should we worry about God slaying the righteous with the wicked? There is none that are righteous. But now we step into the divine economy of righteousness. We've already talked about that, right? Yes, there is none righteous in yourself. There is none who are self-righteous. I mean, there's a lot of people who are self-righteous, but none who are righteous because of their self-righteousness. But what have we seen? Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. And those who have been declared righteous by the grace of God are within God's design, not those who will be judged for unrighteousness, who will be brought into the judgment of the unrighteous for their unrighteousness. The man... By grace, who has accepted that grace is righteous in the eyes of God. If you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, by grace, through faith, you have been justified. You have been declared righteous. You are in the eyes of God Righteous, but I'm still a sinner. Yes, you're still a sinner and you are righteous in God's eyes, but I'm still flawed. Yes, you are still flawed and you are righteous in God's eyes. Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 through 23. Paul writing to the church in Colossae, he says, And you that were sometimes alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh, that's Jesus Christ's death on the cross, through death, to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight, if ye continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which ye have heard, and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister. Now, when he says if there, this is not so much the conditional if that we would normally see. Um, When when we approach the scriptures, um, the word if is used very much in the same way that we might use if in our English language. So, The idea of my children saying, Hey, Daddy, can we go get ice cream? And I say, If you are well-behaved, we will go get ice cream. That's a very conditional if, right? There's about a thousand ways in which they will not get ice cream and probably one or two ways in which they will probably end up getting that ice cream because it's a very conditional if that they will be very well-behaved. But then we have other ifs as well. I might say on a rainy day... It's raining out there. It's not raining, but if it were raining, it's raining out there. And I might say, well, if it's raining, I guess I'm staying inside today. Well, that's still an if statement, but it's not a very conditional if because I can open the window and see it's raining outside. So I am saying on the present condition that indeed it is raining outside, I am thus staying inside. And that's perfectly acceptable within the, 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 broad, the, the breadth of our English vernacular to use the word that way. It was the same in the Greek. Except in the Greek, it's more precise. It's actually a different word. So you can see when they're using that if statement as more conditional or less conditional. This is that, if you will, less conditional if statement. Some people will say it's more like a since than an if. Probably a little slightly more conditional than a since, but since gives a much better flavor of the word than if. So let me read it to you with a since. And you that were sometimes alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciles in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight, since you continue in the faith grounded and settled. This is not warning you that you might lose your salvation if you don't live up to God's expectations. This is saying, because you have stepped into a relationship of faith and you are walking in that faith, this is what you have to expect and to enjoy, and that is that God sees you as holy and unblameable and unreprovable in His sight. Yes, none of us deserve such descriptions because every one of us is sinful, As the song says, should he devote that sacred head to such a worm as I? It's a pretty good statement. It's a pretty accurate statement as it relates to me. But in God's eyes, I'm not that worm. Compared to God, I am that worm, but in God's eyes, I'm not that worm. Compared to God, I'm a sinful wretch, but in God's eyes, I'm not a sinful wretch. Because when God sees me, he sees the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. He sees righteousness. Not because of my own righteousness, but because I am clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ at the moment of belief. I am declared righteous in him. And the track record of the character of our unchanging God is that when he brings judgment upon the wicked for their wickedness, the righteous are not caught up in that judgment. But God will make provision for the deliverance of the righteous. Now, what doesn't this mean? This doesn't mean that the righteous do not get caught up in man's wickedness. We get caught up in man's wicked choices all the time, don't we? When nations war, the righteous will die just as the unrighteous will. Because it is not a divine judgment, this is rather a natural consequence of man's wickedness that nations war. When natural disasters come, the righteous will die just as the unrighteous. Because this is not a divine judgment of God, this is a natural consequence of a sin-cursed world. And in fact, it is a good reminder to us that not everything bad thing that happens in the world is a direct judgment of God upon the world. Because in a sin-sick world, bad things happen. And as we look into the Psalms and the Proverbs, as we look into the uh, historical understanding through the scriptures and then throughout the rest of history, bad things happen to God's people. But when, in truth, the judgment of God falls upon a man or a society or indeed upon the earth for their unrighteousness, God will not punish the righteous for the unrighteousness of the unrighteous. The righteous do not get caught up in the judgment of God upon the unrighteous because the judge of all the earth will do right. One final point. One man's faith can lead to the faith of many more. We find that Noah was a righteous man. He walked with God. He was a recipient of the grace of God by faith. We learn nothing of his sons here as it relates to their relationship with God except their proximity to Noah. And as we continue through the word of God, we will find clarity as to this idea. From the word of God, we can state without compromise that if those three men... Their wives, and even Mrs. Noah, for lack of a better label, were on the boat. They were on the boat because they too had faith. The fact that they were on the boat means they had faith too. The very fact that they were there is a testimony to their choice to get in the boat, which means they believed God. Our memory verse for last month was James 2.18. Do you remember what it said? I won't ask you to say it with me. Yea, a man may say, thou hast faith and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works. I will show thee my faith by my works. James says that faith without works is dead, an invalid faith. And we have talked about what this does mean and what this does not mean. This does not mean that my works establish or that my works bring about my faith, that my works save me. Not even that my works establish my justification. A man is justified by faith, but faith is justified by works. May I say that again? A man is justified by faith, but faith is justified by works. And this is what James is saying. What James means is this. When a person has faith, that faith will inevitably produce the work that is consistent with That faith. So that if a person's life does not produce the work that is consistent with their faith, their claim of faith, it indicates that that faith which they claim to have is false. It is dead. It is not true faith. Noah was told by God that it was going to rain and that the earth would be flooded, and so he needed to make a boat. How do I know that Noah had faith? Because he made the boat. If he has been spending 120 years saying, the flood is coming, and only people in the boat are saved, and everyone says, what boat? He says, well, I'm not making the boat, but the flood's coming. You don't actually believe the flood is coming if you're not making the boat. You can say you believe it all you want, but if you're not making the boat, you don't believe the flood is coming. If a person's life does not produce the work that is consistent with that faith, it indicates that that faith that they claim to have, they don't have. They might have lots of knowledge, but it hasn't translated to faith. How do I know that Noah believed what God said? He made the boat. Now, after the flood, Noah will go on to make some mistakes. He's going to get himself drunk. He's going to be lying on the ground naked in his shame. This is not the common marks of a moral man. Okay? It's a shameful work of Noah, lying in nakedness, drunkenness, but this has nothing to do with whether or not he had the faith to get in the boat. We know he had the faith to get in the boat because he got in the boat. His faith was proven the moment he got in the boat. The fact that he was still a man that had other struggles in faith, other struggles with various aspects of morality... Means that, and we know he had those struggles because of what his life produced. But it doesn't compromise the fact that he built the boat when God said to build the boat. And he got in the boat when God said get in the boat. Only Noah's actions to build or not to build the boat reflect upon Noah's faith in God's word regarding the flood. Regarding other things, we could look to other various elements of fruit. And it's the same way with you and I. Not just regarding salvation, but regarding everything in the Christian life. Salvation is by grace through faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Follow me here. Anyone who exercises this faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ will inevitably produce the work that is consistent with the faith that they claim. So then you have to ask, what is the work that is consistent with With the faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Is it that you're never going to lie again? Nope, that's not the work that's consistent. Is it that you're going to reform every aspect of your life? Nope, that's not the work that's consistent with my claim of faith there. What is the work that is consistent with my claim of faith? Anyone who does not produce this work has no actual faith in Jesus Christ's finished work on the cross. What is that work? Well... The man who has placed his his faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ will inevitably produce the work that he will stop trying to earn his way to God. That is the work that is inevitably and invariably produced in the life of one who genuinely has placed his faith in Jesus Christ. A man cannot say, I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sins. He was buried. He rose again. He did that sufficient to save me from my sins. And then go over here and start working his way to salvation. And start trying to earn his way to God. That is an inconsistency. That faith, I know, is dead because it has not inevitably produced the work that that faith faith will produce. It isn't the work itself that leads me to justification, the work is simply the evidence that proves that I have in fact exercised my faith in God required to save a man from his sins. Furthermore, as I said, I cannot look to other works founded upon other promises as the evidence of faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I cannot say that a person is not saved because he's lying or because he's coveting. These are things which I would expect naturally to happen in the life of one who is following Christ. They're going to stop lying. They're going to stop coveting. As he walks that path of faith in God's word. But these works are not the works that are the natural and consistent outcome of belief in the gospel. These are the works that are the natural and consistent outcome of belief in the word of God's teachings as it relates to integrity, truth, contentment, Right? So that when I I read in the scriptures, be content with such things as you have, whether or not I believe that promise will be evidenced in whether or not contentment is produced in my life. If I'm not a content man, I might know Paul's teaching and be content with such things as you have, but I don't have faith in it. How do I know I don't have faith in it? Because I'm not content. Faith invariably produces a work, the work that is consistent with the faith that I claim to have. I cannot look at a person who's dealing with a sin in their lives and say, well, they must not be a believer because of that sin. Maybe they are, maybe they aren't. But that sin is not necessarily going to uh, um, tell me whether they're a believer or an unbeliever because the work that is produced in one who has accepted the gospel is that they have ceased from their dead works and they're putting their faith in God. Right? So that's what we find in James. Excuse me. This is not at all a contradiction to the idea of salvation by grace through faith. Men and women are justified before God by faith unto salvation and unto sanctification. But that faith in my life is justified by works so that the way that I know that I have faith in a certain teaching of Jesus or a certain promise of God is when my life produces the work that is consistent with the faith that I claim to have. And contrary-wise, if I say that I have faith in God's Word but the works of my life do not reflect the teaching of God's Word, then how can I say that I have faith? Much to the contrary, that faith in me is dead. I have knowledge, but it has not given way to faith. So then coming back to Noah and his family. There's no question that they had faith. How do we know that? Because Noah and Mrs. Noah and his sons and his sons' wives got in the boat. There's no question that they had faith. These other men and women did not get a spot on the boat because of their proximity to a man of faith... They got in the boat because they were also men and women of faith. But it was Noah who God spoke to, wasn't it? It was Noah who God commissioned to build the boat. It was Noah who was the man that the Bible says walked with God. It was Noah with whom God made that covenant. And in this, we are reminded that our lives, Christian, our testimonies do not just affect us. Christian, your life of faith may touch people in ways you may never know or understand. Your decision to stand for what is right when all men are doing wrong. Your decision to express truth when everyone else is expressing error. Your decision to love the Lord even when the people around you are pressuring you to do otherwise even people you might care about. That may mean the difference, not just in blessing for you and all of the rewards that come from your obedience, but that may mean the difference between someone else who's watching you finally making that choice to exercise their own faith or making the choice to walk away. If your children enter the kingdom of God one day and by God's grace and hear as I prayed this morning, of our children, we would lose none. It will only be because they themselves have accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior. You cannot make that choice for them. God has no spiritual grandchildren. He only has spiritual children. You're a child of God, you're not a child of God. The same can be said for your neighbor, your friend, your relatives, your co-workers, If any of them end up in heaven, it will be because they have chosen to accept Jesus Christ as their Savior. But that does not mean that your faith may not play a role in whether or not they enter into the kingdom one day. Your testimony, your actions, your decisions. We are called by God to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with those who are around us to tell the good news. Indeed, Paul said in Romans chapter 10, verse 14, How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? The idea of a preacher here is not a pastor, by the way. I'm not your hired gun to do your work for you. It's the idea of a teller of the good news. You can be that just as I can. One who is willing to tell. So then Paul concludes in verse 17, Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. There's no question that if a person hasn't heard the gospel and doesn't know the gospel, they have no hope of accepting the gospel. But that being said, what if you, having stepped into the boat of the Lord's salvation from the judgment of sin upon this world, might be able to inspire a few others to do the same through your words, through your testimony. Yes, they will only get in the boat if they believe the promises of God. But what if your faith might inspire them to do the same? I don't know why Shem, Ham, and Japheth got in the boat. I don't know what their relationship was. The Bible doesn't really tell us much. But we do know this. God called a man Noah. When Noah got in that boat, his wife, his children, and their wives did too. One man's faith can lead to the faith of others. When it was time to get in the boat, all eight of them chose to get in that boat. And may it be with us as well. That your faith in the true and living God would not just be for you, but would indeed be open, honest, and transparent enough that it might inspire faith in others as well. May it be that our parents would inspire faith in their children. May it be that our our siblings would inspire faith in one another. May it be that our church community would inspire in one another faith. That our passion and our love for God and the manifest works of righteousness in our lives would compel others to believe the promises of God and to make their own faith decisions, to cast off their own wicked works and to follow Christ, to the glory of God and to the wellness of our souls. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.